going to open up this morning to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. It can be found on page 1560 in the Pew Bible, if you're using one of those. Mark chapter 6. As you turn there, I want you to think for a moment uh, about something that amazes you. Think about something that amazes you. Boys and girls, think about something that amazes you. Uh, Lately, uh, I've been amazed by the magnitude of the universe that God has created. Some time ago, our family received a uh, devotional written by Louis Giglio. Uh, It's called Indescribable, 100 Devotions About God and Science. We really enjoy it. If your kids are about the same age as mine, you might enjoy it as well. Um, But uh, recently in this devotional, we read about um, the star that astronomers refer to as Musafe. Musafe, that's the name that they've given this star. And there's two things about this star that have particularly amazed me. First, the fact that it's 3,000 light years away is pretty amazing. One light year equals about 5.9 trillion miles. So times that by 3,000 and right? It's a long, long, long ways away, farther away than any of us can comprehend. Perhaps it's amazing in itself that scientists have identified this and can see this even that far. Secondly, I'm amazed, I was amazed by the fact that this star is so big, so big, that 2.7 quadrillion Earths could fit inside of it. It's actually the biggest known star in the universe. But, but that's crazy, and it's amazing, and no doubt it testifies to the greatness of our God. So that's something lately that has, that has amazed me. I want you to think about something that amazes you, okay? You got it? Don't think too hard. Don't hurt yourself. Now let me ask you this. What amazes Jesus? What amazes Jesus? Does anything, boys and girls, does anything amaze Jesus? Does anything amaze the one by whom all things like Musafe were created? And in whom all things, even things 3,000 light years away, are held together? Does anyone amaze one like that? Well, we might not think so, but believe it or not, there is something that amazes Jesus. And we find out what it is in our text this morning. So your Bibles are open I want to give you a chance to stand up. We've kind of decided we're going to do this. If we don't sing, we're going to stand up for the Bible reading, just to give you a a chance to stand up. So why don't we stand up and read together today? Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given to him? that he even does miracles. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, only in his hometown, among his relatives and in his own house, is a prophet without honor. He couldn't do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. This is God's Word for His people this morning. You may be seated. And before we begin, let's ask God to bless our study of His Word. Lord God, we thank You for the opportunity we have on this first Sunday of 2019 to gather freely in Your presence and to hear from Your Word. 
Father, we know that it is by your word that you do your work in your world and in our lives. And we pray that as your word goes forth this morning, you would attend it with power and you would do your work in our lives through it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, our text, uh, text begins with these words, Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. Where has Jesus left? Jesus has left Capernaum. Capernaum sits on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, and uh, it's served as the setting for much of Jesus' ministry thus far in Mark. And where does Jesus go to? Well, he goes to his hometown, Mark tells us, and we know that his hometown is Nazareth. Nazareth is situated about 25 miles southwest of Capernaum. I was going to look up a town 25 miles from here. Cadillac's roughly 25 miles, I think, so it's about from here to, here to Cadillac, maybe a little farther. It's about 25 miles southwest of Capernaum, and it was kind of a backwoods, out-of-the-way town made up of only about 500 people uh, in the days of Jesus. We might compare that with Falmouth, Falmouth proper over here, if we consider, you know what I'm talking about, where the community is itself, where the dam is and stuff. It's about 250 people, so Nazareth would have been twice the size of that, but if you want to go Falmouth sort of as a whole, zip code-wise, 49632, that's about 1,100 people. So Nazareth would have been about half the size of that. So either twice the size of Falmouth proper or half the size of Falmouth greater, however you want to think about that. That's Nazareth. So it's not a big town. It's a town where everybody knew everybody. Everybody was probably everybody's cousin, a lot like here, right? Uncles, friends, aunts, we all know each other. Falmouth, Nazareth was a lot like that. We read in verse 2, when the Sabbath came, Jesus began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed, and they asked, where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom that's been given to him? What are these miracles he's, he does? Now, we've, we've seen all of this before. Okay, in Mark 1, 21 through 28, Jesus is in Capernaum. When the Sabbath comes, he enters the synagogue. He begins to teach, and the people there are likewise amazed, and they ask similar questions about the source of his wisdom and the source of his power. We, we've seen this before. What's unique about Nazareth, however, is that the amazement has a, has a negative effect. The amazement leads to, or, or, or is the amazement of, maybe, the contempt and disdain. Look at verse 3. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. So this amazement leads to contempt, leads to them being offended. The, uh, the word offense comes from the Greek word scandalon. You can hear an English word in there, right? Scandalized. The people of Nazareth are scandalized by Jesus. Maybe what we need to know about this word more than anything is that it appears eight times in Mark's gospel, and every time it is used in reference to something that keeps one from coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, what is it that keeps these folks from coming to faith in Jesus Christ? What is it that scandalizes them? Well, it's the simple ordinariness 
and familiarity, those words are both mouthfuls for me, ordinariness and familiarity of Jesus. That's, that's what offends him. This is just an ordinary, familiar guy. Isn't this the carpenter? They ask each other. That always makes me laugh. Monday morning, I was having breakfast at Duane's, and, and a gentleman I know from, work, from the days when I worked for my dad doing heating and cooling comes in, and he sits down at the booth next to us, and uh, he was a plumber. We were heating and cooling guys. We often worked on jobs together. He walks in, he looks at me, and he says, hey, you're the heating guy. Now, he certainly didn't mean any offense by that, of course, but that, that's how he knew me. Fair enough. That's, that's who I was to him. I hadn't seen him since then. You're the heating guy. That's what Jesus is to these people. He's the carpenter. He's the one who works side by side with his dad, building houses in their community and, and building yokes and farm implements for the oxen. That's the sort of thing carpenters did in, in the first century. Okay, that, that's how they know Jesus. He's the carpenter. And so when he comes to town speaking as though he's studied under the most learned of rabbis and with his disciples in tow as if he himself is one of the most learned of rabbis, the people are offended. Who does he think he is to come in here and speak to us this way? He's the carpenter for crying out loud. And then they go, they go point to Jesus' family, don't they? Isn't this Mary's son? Now, this is not a normal way of referring to someone in the first century. Usually, they were referred to as their father's son. That was the common way to refer to someone. And even if Joseph is dead by now, that's still how Jesus and his brothers would have, could have, should have been referred, as the sons of Joseph. And in all likelihood, this might be a slam against Jesus. It might be a spiteful reference to the, to the shady circumstances of his birth, you know, having been born out of wedlock and all that. Then they say, aren't his brothers here with us and his sisters too? They're just, they're just pointing out the fact that Jesus comes from a pretty ordinary family. There's nothing about his family that gives him the right to speak the way he does. There's nothing about his family or his background that accounts for these powerful miracles he performs. There's nothing that indicates to these people that this is the Lord's anointed, that this is the long-awaited Messiah. He's just Jesus, the carpenter from an ordinary, run-of-the-mill Nazareth family. Might not even be run-of-the-mill. There's that rumor about his birth, but you get the point. So the ordinariness and familiarity of Jesus causes these people to take offense to him. Who does he think he is talking to us this way? And these miracles he performs, what reason do we have to believe he does them by any power other than Beelzebub himself? That's really the logical outworking. Now, there's a principle at work here that applies in all of life, but especially so in matters of the faith. And it's that in this sinful world, people have a tendency to undervalue, and in some cases even despise the things with which they are familiar. There's an old saying, familiarity breeds contempt. That's really what's going on here, and that's what Jesus is getting at in verse 4 when he says, only in his hometown, among his relatives and his own house, 
is a prophet without honor. People have a tendency to undervalue and even despise the things with which they are familiar. We certainly do, don't we? We, we certainly do. The famous French writer Montaigne once said that at home, he was considered just a scribbling country proprietor. In the neighboring town, he was considered a man of recognized business ability. And farther away, he was known as a noted and prestigious author. So the farther he got from home, the greater he became. That's kind of how it works in this area. I'm not going to say that I become great in Falmouth. I certainly hope I don't. But in Falmouth, I'm known as the pastor of Prosper CRC, Pastor Dirk. Some of you refer to me as Reverend, right? Go down to Hudsonville. If I am called Reverend, it's snarky. But I'm just Dirk, or I'm the heating guy, the seminarian to some. If you go farther enough back, I'm the kid who would not stop talking out of turn in class. Okay? But you get the point. You get the point. There's a, there's a couple, couple applications here. The first one pertains to our own relationship with Jesus. It is possible, people of God, that we become so familiar with Jesus that we, like the people of Nazareth, either undervalue him or show him outright contempt. That's possible. I want you to hear what J.C. Ryle said. He's writing about his home country of England in the 1800s. Well, listen to what he says. There's nothing in all this that needs surprise us. The same thing is going on around us every day in our land. The holy scriptures, the preaching of the gospel, the public ordinances of religion, the abundant means of grace that England enjoys are continually undervalued by English people. They are so accustomed to them that they do not know their privileges. Now again, Ryle is writing about England in the late 1800s, but without a doubt, the same thing The same thing could be written about our own country today. The same thing could be written about our own community today here in Falmouth. That we grow so accustomed to our religious privileges and even more to the Lord Jesus Christ who is held out to us in our religious privileges that we undervalue Him or even show Him outright contempt in the way we disregard His commandments. It... uh, It's interesting to me that you hear stories about pastors who, American pastors who go overseas to countries where the gospel isn't as free to go out as it is here, maybe in Africa, maybe in China. And there's people there who who are persecuted for their faith and who are forced to worship in secret. David Platt speaks of this experience. David Platt's the one who runs the secret church thing that we do here every spring, but, but you go out to China let's say, and you, you preach to the people. They gather, and they bring you in to preach, and it's, it's secret, and you're not making this public, but people are there, and you preach for 45 minutes to an hour, and you close your Bible, and the people just stare at you like, what are you doing? You've got you to keep preaching, right? You've got to keep telling us about the Lord Jesus Christ. This opportunity doesn't come to us every single day or every single week. There's other passages that tell the same story. I just read about one. I can't remember where I read it. I think it might have been Reverend Derek Thomas. But uh, he was talking about how he preached 45 minutes. And the people said, no, you're not done. We need more. And he went and found another text. And he went to like four different texts and preached three sermons that he hadn't even planned on preaching because the people were so hungry to hear the truth of Jesus Christ. 
And then I contrast that with, with, with what goes on in America. I only get 30 people to come back for a second service. And we're not, most churches don't even have a second service anymore. Right? What, what, what's the deal? Our Savior's, our Savior's speaking to us. Has, has He become familiar? Have we just, have we just taken Him for granted? Right? We need to guard ourselves from this Nazareth-like familiarity with Jesus that undervalues Him and that despises Him and that takes Him for granted as if He's just always there. There's also an application here for our newly installed elders and deacons. Here's the thing, beloved. These are leaders of the church. Okay, I, am, I am not the leader of this church. I am, I am one of. I am one of the leaders of this church. The elders are called to lead spiritually by shepherding the flock. The deacons are called to lead physically by ensuring that the needs of God's people and the community are met, right? as well as by promoting good stewardship amongst the members. And here's the thing. One thing I've come to sort of realize in my five years of ministry is that one thing that keeps our elders and deacons from leading as they should is this problem of familiarity. It's not really their familiarity with you. I think it's your, it's your familiarity with them, and they might be self-conscious of that, so I'm speaking to all of us at once here. But, but some of us don't really want these guys to lead or don't think they should lead because, hey, we know them, and they're, they're not better than us. They walk like us. They talk like us. They work like us. They've committed the same sins as us and, on some cases, even with us. And you're right. You are absolutely right. But nevertheless, that doesn't change the fact that we believe God, by His grace, has called them to these offices at this time. God has called them to lead us at this time. And the faithful among us, we will honor them for that. We will obey our leaders and submit to their authority as Hebrews 13, 17 calls each of us to do. So when your elder or your deacon calls on you this year, when they reach out to you, hopefully just just to shepherd and just to care for you. But when they do that, I hope that rather than saying, saying, you know, who are you to minister to me, or rather than kind of despising them in your heart for this, you'll receive them as one who is over you in the Lord. I hope you receive them, and I hope you let them minister to you even as you would let me minister to you. Let's continue on. Verse 5, we see, we see the result of Nazareth taking offense to Jesus. Kind of a fascinating verse. There we read, He could not do any miracles there except lay His hands on a few sick people and heal them. Now, the details here need to be understood in light of the previous stories. Remember last week, uh, there was really an emphasis on faith, wasn't there? Uh, we saw Jesus' power over disease and the healing of the bleeding woman. We saw His power over death and His raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead. But the emphasis is on faith. The bleeding woman, she touches Jesus. Jesus says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Faith was the channel through which Christ's power flowed. And then what does Jesus say to Jairus before he raises his daughter from the dead? Don't be afraid, just believe. Or just have faith. The necessity of faith is emphasized in the previous story. And Jesus' power is poured out in response to these people's faith. What's the problem here? There is no faith. There is no faith. Far from believing in Jesus, far from trusting in Jesus, the people of Nazareth are scandalized by Jesus. 
Here there is no faith. And so subsequently there is no power. There are no miracles. At least not like there has been, right? He does heal a few sick people. But nothing like people have grown accustomed to at this point in Jesus' ministry. And we need to be clear here. What is being stressed here, what is being emphasized here, is not the inability of Jesus. It's not as though Jesus' hands are tied by the unbelief of those in Nazareth. Okay, we already saw Jesus calm the storm despite the unbelief of his own disciples. What's being stressed here is not the, the inability of Jesus. What is being stressed is the consequences of unbelief. What is being stressed is the consequences of unbelief. Just as faith is the instrument by which, we, by which we embrace Christ and benefit from His almighty power, so is unbelief the means by which we deprive ourselves of Christ's grace and almighty power. Okay, that's, that's the point here. Now, certainly this truth speaks to the truth of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. It certainly does. But we'd be foolish to think it doesn't find continued application in our own lives, even after we've come to Christ in faith. Take, for instance, let's take Sunday morning, for instance. Right? How, do you, how do you come to church? Do you, do you come with little expectation of being blessed and changed? Do you come with little expectation of knowing and experiencing Christ's saving power? Well, if so, don't be surprised when you don't experience it. Don't be surprised when you're not blessed or changed through worship. But on the other hand, if you come to worship in faith, believing that God, through corporate worship and through the preaching of His Word and through these means of grace, blesses His people and works in the lives of His people and causes His people to grow in grace, then in all likelihood, you will. You will be blessed. You will be touched with Christ's saving power. We can apply it also to the struggle against sin. Do you struggle against sin believing that Christ has the power to deliver you? Listen, I've, I've struggled against anxiety for much of my life. Recently, it's gotten bad, and I've begun praying against it. This was, this was several months ago now, but I began praying against it like I never had before. And I stopped trying to, trying to defeat anxiety by myself and in my own strength, but I just said, Christ, I can't do this, but I believe that you have the power to deliver me and to give me victory, and I have experienced significant relief. Doesn't mean I don't have bad days, right? Not perfect, none, we're not perfect, but I have experienced relief. I have. I will tell you that in all honesty right now. Do you struggle against sin and weakness in the same way? Do you struggle it in faithful dependence on Christ to heal and to deliver? Or do you struggle against it in unbelief, depending on yourself and on your resources to overcome it? Our text challenges us to live and to trust in Christ and to live continually with that expectant dependence of faith. I believe, Lord Jesus, that through your word and through the preaching of your word, you will, you will do a mighty work in my heart. I believe, Lord Jesus, that you can give me victory over sin, that you can enable me to put this sin to death, right? His power flows through faith. Well, our text ends with these words in verse 6. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Why is Jesus amazed by this? Why is he amazed? Well, it's probably because if anybody should have believed, 
it was these folks. I mean, I mean, this is where Jesus grew up. This is where Jesus spent nearly 30 years of his life. These people have witnessed for themselves his perfect righteousness before God and his fellow man. These people have seen for themselves his doing all things well. They've seen it. Beloved, there's probably no more spiritually privileged town in the history of the world than Nazareth for the almost 30 years that Jesus, the Son of God, lived among them. Yet they don't believe. They don't believe. And Jesus is, Jesus is amazed. Jesus says, you've got to be kidding me. Of all the people who would reject me, it should not be you. It should not be you. You've had spiritual privileges like this world has never known. It should not be you. Interestingly enough, there is one other time, one other occasion, I should say, in all the Gospels, when we are told that Jesus is amazed. One other occasion. It's in Matthew chapter 8, verse 10. Here we read about a centurion. A centurion was the commander of a hundred in the Roman army. hundred is a century. Centurion is the commander of a hundred. We read about a centurion, a commander in the Roman army, who comes to Jesus and he asks him for help. He says, help me, Lord, my servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Jesus says, I'll go heal him. And the centurion replies, Lord, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. And then we read, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. That's the only other time in the Gospels where we read about Jesus being amazed, and it's in reference to this great faith of a Roman soldier. So what amazes Jesus? That's the question I opened with this morning. And according to Scripture, there are, there are two things that amaze Jesus, and we might say that they're on either side of the same coin. First, Jesus is amazed by those who shouldn't believe, but do. This is the case with the Roman centurion. Why, why does he come to faith in Jesus? He's not an Israelite. He hasn't grown up in the covenant community. He hasn't been afforded all the privileges of the covenant. Why does he believe? Where does his great faith come from? Jesus is amazed when someone believes who shouldn't. But secondly, and this is what we're seeing in our text, he's amazed by those who should believe but don't. Again, the people of Nazareth are highly, highly privileged when it comes to the things of God. The Lord Jesus Christ walked among them for years. If anyone should believe in Him as the Son of God and the Messiah, it is them. But they don't. And Jesus is amazed by people like this who should believe but do not. Now here's the deal. There are some of us here this morning who amaze Jesus for the same reason the centurion did. 
We believe in him really against all odds. We believe in him despite the fact that, that we did not grow up in a Christian home where our parents prayed with us and read the Bible with us and brought us to church and instilled the faith in us from a young age. Or we believe in him despite the fact that our dearest loved ones do not and even perhaps look down on us and show us contempt for doing so. Or we, or we believe in him despite the fact that we have suffered terribly in life. And as far as the world is concerned, we have every right to curse God and die. Yet we don't. We won't. We can't. Many of us are like the centurion. I know there's some of you here this morning because I know some of your stories. We believe in Jesus against all odds. We believe in him despite the fact that we have every reason not to. And if you're one of these people this morning, well, please know that Jesus is amazed by you. Jesus is amazed by you. He, he looks at you, and he sees your trust in him against all the odds, against every curveball that's come your way, and with the affection of a loving and proud father, he says, you've got to be kidding me. How wonderful, how amazing is this one's faith. Now, that being said, there's probably others of us here today who amazed Jesus for the same reason the people of Nazareth did. That is, we, we should believe. We have every reason to believe. We've grown up in a Christian home. We've been afforded all the privileges of the covenant community. We've had parents who've prayed with us and who've read the Bible with us and who've brought us to church our whole lives and who've sent us to Sunday school and catechism and youth group. We've sat under the preaching of the word. We've heard the gospel held forth with accuracy time and time and time again, yet we do not believe. We continue living our lives in unrepentance as we trust in our own works and in our own performance for salvation and as we go on gratifying the desires of the flesh. And please know, friend, please know that if you're one of these people, the Lord Jesus Christ looks at you this morning and he's amazed. He's amazed. He looks at you and he says, you've got to be kidding me. What more could have been done for you? How could you hear over and over and over again about my death on the cross for your sins and about my glorious resurrection on the third day and not be moved to faith? Wow, Jesus says about you. Young people, there's special warning for you here. What will these do? What will you do, young people, with these spiritual privileges afforded to you in your youth? Will you allow them to create faith in your heart as you submit to the Lord Jesus held out to you in them? Or will you decide that the world has more to offer and give in to its enticements, thus amazing the Lord Jesus Christ? You know, as Reformed believers... We, uh, we unapologetically, at least I do, believe in election. We believe that those who put their faith in Christ do so for one reason. It's because God, out of pure grace, chose them for salvation before the foundation of the world. And in accordance with this decision, at just the right time, He sends the Holy Spirit into our hearts 
bringing us under the conviction of sin and enabling us to respond in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's the thing. Even as we unapologetically believe in election, so do we unapologetically believe that there is no one, no one who is responsible for your unbelief but you. The canons of Dort say the cause for man's unbelief is not at all in God, but in man. Faith is from God, yes, but unbelief is on you. Unbelief is on you, which is why Jesus can be amazed at those who should believe, but don't. What is wrong with you? What is wrong with you? So what amazes Jesus? What amazes Jesus? Well, in light of our text this morning, in light of Mark 6, 1 through 6, hopefully not you. Hopefully not you. But if, but if by God's grace, you have come to realize that it is you, that you are the one who, like the people of Jesus' hometown, should believe but doesn't, well, by all means, repent. Repent. Turn your life around and head in the opposite direction, even as you put your trust for life and death in Christ your Savior. Friend, the good news is he is ever merciful. He is ever compassionate. He is ever forgiving. The good news is it is not the magnitude of your sin that amazes him. It might amaze you. The magnitude of my sin and the wickedness in my heart amazes me. That is not what amazes the Lord Jesus Christ. That is not what causes him to stop in his tracks and say, you've got to be kidding me. No, not at all. It's not the magnitude of your sin. It's simply the unwillingness of a sinner to repent and believe and receive the free gift of salvation afforded to us by his death and resurrection through faith. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, We're grieved about the rejection you received from the people of your hometown of Nazareth. Yet, Lord, even as, we, even as we grieve it, we must confess that we are not always so different. For sometimes our familiarity with you causes us to undervalue you. It causes us not to desire you as we ought. Forgive us, Lord, for our sins. And help us, help us to walk in your way. Help us to treasure you above all else. Help us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Lord, we praise you for those amazing people who shouldn't believe but do. And we pray also for those who should believe but don't. May they be brought under the conviction of their sin and may they find life at the cross. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Song of response is how great thou art. Why don't you stand and we'll sing that together.